Well, hello again, guys. Hello, <laughs> hello everybody. Hello. Okay, all right. I thought, you know, we played like uh, 15 seconds of classic rock music and you all went to sleep during that time. So I don't know, those of you that remember the 60s, I don't know what that brought back in your mind. But anyway, um, how many of you have ever had an experience like this one? See, see if you can watch it without getting angry. <laughs> all right, make it go away. It's going to make us all, all mad. Um, have, raise your hand. You ever had that happen? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, it's like this universal thing. I'm pretty sure it's actually designed that way. There's a little camera inside just to watch your face and record it when you get all upset. But um, when, you, when you find yourself trying to get that money in the vending machine, right, and it won't take it, and right there in front of you behind the glass is that Snickers bar that you've just got to have, right, and you can see it, and you keep putting this dollar in and it keeps spitting it back and spitting it back, and you look at it and you're like, I know it's the right dollar, and you put it back in, and it just doesn't work, it doesn't work. What are you going to do in that situation? Well, first of all, you're going to get frustrated, right? And um, I have seen people, now probably none of you, but I have seen people take it out on the machine. Have you seen that? Right? There's uh, footprints on the side of the machine and people shaking the machine and that kind of stuff. You could uh, take it out on the, sh on the machine. You could go look for help. You could go try to find somebody that knows how to get this done and maybe some other way to do it. You could just shrug your shoulders and give up and go, you know, maybe it's not meant to be. Maybe this is God's way of telling me I don't need a Snickers bar. Maybe you could say that. Um, you could go find another machine. Maybe there's another machine nearby that works better. You might try that. Um, a lot of people might go and make a sign and bring back a piece of tape and, and tape it to the thing saying, this stupid machine doesn't work, don't stand here and waste your time, something like that. Um, or you could just give up vending machines altogether and just decide it's just not worth the trouble, right? A lot of things you could do in a situation like that. The interesting thing is I have witnessed people doing all of those things with God, I have witnessed people because somehow, some way, a lot of us have got this idea that God is the great vending machine in the sky, right? And we're just supposed to go to Him and we're supposed to jump through the correct hoops. And if we get through the correct hoops, like putting your dollar in the machine, He's supposed to pay off. He's supposed to do the things you're asking Him to do. He's supposed to answer the prayers that you're giving Him. And if He doesn't, it gets incredibly frustrating. I mean, I'm guessing I'm not the only one who knows what it's like to really need something and cry out to God and ask for Him to answer prayer only to find that He doesn't do what I ask Him to do. Am I the only one that's ever experienced that? No? That's fairly common, right? Um, and a lot of us have responded to that in, in the kind of ways you respond to a vending machine you don't like. So some people have, you know, decided that they're going to just take it out on God. And, and you know, I, I've talked about this before. I have 
various friends that I grew up with when I was kids that I've reconnected with through social media, and you see them now on Facebook, and they live around the world. And, and one of these guys that was a close friend of mine when I was a kid, I remember that he was raised in a Catholic family, but then he met a Mormon girl, so he converted to Mormonism, and he tried Mormonism for a while, and then that girl left him and broke his heart, and he decided that he hated Mormonism, so he hated Mormonism, and he hated Catholicism. And he just decided that he hated God. And so when I finally reconnected with him as a grown man now, um, he is like an avowed atheist. And, you know, there's a motto to atheism. And the motto is, there is no God and I hate him. Right? <laughs> so, so, and then this is my friend. He, he, you know, praise God, I have reconnected with him. I'm praying for him and his family, encouraging him in every way I can and all that kind of stuff. But he is adamant that there is no God and he hates him. And, and a lot of times people didn't have their intended experience with the vending machine in the sky. That's their response. There's a lot of people that just look somewhere else. Maybe there's a different religion that has the answer. I'll try that. There's a lot of people... Um, who, who just come out against God, like my friend, and just start telling people, hey, this, this vending machine is no good. Don't waste your time here. Um, and there's a lot of people who just give up altogether because we have this idea that somehow we're supposed to be able to go to God and He's supposed to give us stuff. Now, is it true that God gives us stuff? Yeah, everything. What does James say? Every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or, uh, or shadow due to change, right? All good gifts come from God. So I'm not saying good gifts don't come from God. What I am saying is God is not a vending machine, right? And, uh, and a lot of us have misunderstood that. And we're going we're gonna to jump into that in 1 John chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles with you, we've been going all summer through the book of 1 John. We're now in chapter 5. We're winding it up in the next couple of weeks here. But uh, we're going to pick it up in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, which is toward the back of your New Testament, and, uh, and either turn there or look on with somebody, and I'm going to read to you verses 13 through 15 to give you some context of this vending machine problem that I've been thinking about. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So who is he writing to? Christians or non-Christians? Christians. He's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And he says, I've written this whole manifesto, if you will, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You're my intended audience. And I've written it for a reason, he says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying, I am writing to you Christians so you can be confident in your faith. So that the enemy will not steal your joy and he won't steal your sense of hope and, and your, your confidence in eternal life. That's why I'm writing these things because we've been looking at this for months now and we've seen that what John is basically doing is he's contrasting genuine Christianity against counterfeit Christianity, right? And he's telling us we need to look in our hearts. He's saying that if you really have a personal relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it shows up in your life. It affects your belief system. It affects your obedience. It affects your love for God and for other people. And if those things aren't changing in your life and growing, then you should be questioning whether you have a real saving relationship with God. And he's saying, so I'm writing to you so you can be confident based on these things that you have a saving relationship with God. You have eternal life. Verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him 
that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. So he's saying you can be confident, just as you should be confident in your actual salvation. Your salvation doesn't depend upon your, your goodness or your works or your, your own self-righteousness. Your, your salvation depends on grace and grace alone, right? That's what we just sang this morning. And, and he's saying, so you can put your confidence in God and be sure of your salvation if you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to be equally confident, he says, that if you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. And that if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So doesn't that kind of sound like if you put the dollar in the vending machine, you can be confident you're getting the Snickers bar? I mean, that's pretty much what he's saying, right? That's certainly how it sounds. And you can see why people get that idea. But if we're going to understand this and we're going to realize why God is not the great vending machine in the sky, then we're going to have to really understand something right from the beginning. And so let me give it to you by asking a question. Who is sovereign, you or God? Good, you got it right. God, right? And, and frankly, we could easily pass the test. You know, this is the second time today I've asked that question to a crowd full of people, and nobody said, I'm sovereign. God does what I tell him. Nobody said that. Everybody passed the test, right? The interesting thing, though, is that oftentimes we live as if we believe that I'm sovereign and God answers to me. As if we believe that God was created for my glory, as if we believe that God was created to serve me. Oftentimes we live that way, even though we get the right answer on the quiz. We have to begin by remembering this foundational fact before we can understand anything about prayer. It is this, God is God and I am not, right? Say it with me, God is God and I am not, okay? We have to get that right. So there are no surefire ways at hacking God, you're not going to be able to, to just skip any, any steps and sneak in the back door and get God's puppet strings and begin to control God and do what he, uh, get Him to do what, he, what you want Him to do. What does verse 14 say? That we have to ask according to His what? His will. That we have to ask according to His will. Now, what happens for those of us who who really put our faith in Christ, come into a saving relationship with Jesus, begin to walk by faith and obedience and love and all the things that John has been talking about. Before you know Christ, right? Here you are, you're this person and you have a will. And your will is what you want, right? And over here is God and He has a will. And maybe God's will and your will are not the same, right? But as you come to know Jesus and you walk with Him, as you mature in Christ, guess what happens? God's will doesn't move toward you, but what happens? Your will moves toward God, right? God begins to shape your will. He begins to move you into accordance with His will to where after a while, after you've been walking with God and you've been growing in maturity and experiencing His goodness and learning to trust Him, gradually you begin to want some of the same things that He wants. Now, is anybody perfect at that? No, not yet. There's nobody whose will is completely aligned with God's will just yet this side of heaven. But if he's working in you, he's bringing you to that place. Over time, your will begins to look a lot more like God's will. 
Turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. It's in the Old Testament. If you just open your Bible to the middle, you'll probably be in Psalms or close to it. Go to Psalm chapter 37. And I want us to look together at a verse that uh, is familiar to uh, many of you, although you may not have known where it was. Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. Here's what it says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Have you heard that verse before? How many of you have heard that verse before? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Again, sounds kind of like the vending machine God, doesn't it? That if I just do the thing I'm supposed to do, put the dollar in the thing, delight myself in the Lord, He's going to give me what I want, right? He's going to give me the desires of my heart. How does that happen? It happens because as God brings my will into conformity to His will, I begin to want His will. The desires of my heart change. You know, it's sort of like growing up just as a, as a human being, you know? You maybe, maybe you were a, a four-year-old girl and all you wanted was a dollhouse. That is all you wanted. Just, Lord, just give me a dollhouse. If I have a dollhouse, I'll be the happiest girl in the world, right? But when you're 44, do you want a dollhouse? Some of you may be collectors, right? No, you're going, Lord, give me a real house. I want a house I can go in, right? Your, your heart's desires change as you grow and mature. And as you grow and mature as a Christian, your heart's desires change. I find the things that I desire deeply in my heart today, many of them are not anything like the things I desired 25 years ago. Because as I walk with God, the longer I walk with Him, the more my heart comes into, into accordance with His. Now again, is anybody perfect at this? No. But He does begin to change the desires of your heart when you delight in the Lord. He gives you a new heart. He begins to give you the desires that are in accordance with His will. Now, what has John been saying in 1 John for four and a half chapters? He's been saying, we need to delight in God. That would be a great summary, right? You got to believe Him. You got to obey him. You got to love him. You got to let him love others through you. That's what he's been saying again and again and again. In other words, when a person is mature in Christ, his world no longer revolves around himself. You begin to recognize that you are a part of what revolves around God. And God's will becomes far more important to you than even your own will. And if you, you really ask yourself about really the most spiritually mature people you know. And a lot of them are not like the people who are standing up on platforms in churches. Most of the most spiritually mature people I know are quiet and under the radar and they're, they're just, you know, wise and godly people. And if you think about the most spiritually mature people you know and ask yourself, do they or do they not seem to want what God wants? When they, when they pray, are they not praying for God's will to be done? Um, so let me show you kind of how this works. I just want to give you a, an example from Scripture, and it's probably my favorite example. So if you've been around this church any length of time, you probably heard me give this example before, but bear with me because I think it's, it's profoundly important. Go to the book of 2 Corinthians. Again, New Testament, after Romans is 1 Corinthians, then you find 2 Corinthians. And go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And what's been happening in 2 Corinthians is that Paul has basically been pouring out his heart and talking about how difficult things have been. He's serving the Lord and nobody seems to be respecting him. He's asking God for things and God is not answering his prayers the way he wants him to. And, and the people are disrespecting him and his life is just really difficult and he's suffering. And basically what he's saying is, to be honest with you, I just would rather be dead. Not suicidal, just, just I want to go to heaven. <laughs> I just want to be done. I, it's too much. I just want to be in God's presence. I just want to be absent from my body and present with the Lord. So that's where we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, uh, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. In other words, I would rather be in heaven than to be here with you. That's what he's saying. Verse 9, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. We have as our ambition, not we have as one of our ambitions, we have as our single ambition, we the apostles. What our ambition is, is to be pleasing to God. We have boiled down life to one purpose, and the purpose is simply this, Paul says, my life's about one thing being pleasing to God. The definition of success is to be pleasing to God, says Paul. Now, he's a theologian and a pastor, and this is the kind of thing you would expect him to say. But watch his life. Because as he goes from this point, what you see is every town that he goes to, does he meet any resistance? Yeah. He gets beaten and whipped and stoned and imprisoned in almost every town that he goes to. He stands and just does what God asks him to do, right? He just preaches the gospel, and they start throwing rocks. He finds himself bleeding on a prison floor over and over and over and over again. Not only that, but the churches that he begins, once they drive him out of town, what happens? These false teachers come in behind him. They start teaching falsehood and saying, you shouldn't even respect Paul or listen to him anymore. And he goes from one jail to the next, and, and his uh, credibility is just dropping with the church. And he finds himself, after all of these years of ministry, sitting in a Roman prison, waiting to be executed. And the very last thing that we have from Paul in Scripture is the book of 2 Timothy. So find 2 Timothy. It's in your New Testament. Um, you're going to go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you get First and Second Thessalonians, then First and Second Timothy. Go to Second Timothy chapter four. Now, this is the very last thing we have from Paul. In fact, he says right here in this passage, "I know the Lord has shown me that I'm about to die. I know that there's no more waiting. I know that the executioner is coming." and I'm going to be put to death. And sure enough, right after he finishes writing 2 Timothy, he's the no longer, you know, the wax is not even dry on the envelope, and he hears the footsteps of the executioners. And church history tells us that they come and get him, and they take him out into the courtyard, and they publicly remove his head from his body. And that's how he gets to heaven, okay? Now, what are his last written words before that happens? Here's what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. 
I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, I I hear the footsteps of the executioner. I know they're about to put me to death. My body is covered with scars. I have a rap sheet as long as your arm. I've been in jail at every town in this part of the world. Hardly anybody respects me anymore. And they're coming to put me to death. Now, what kind of an idiot considers his life successful at that point? Paul. He says, you guys, I'm a wild success. I have finished the race. I'm breaking the tape probably today. And when I break the tape, they're going to lead me to the platform. And the, and the king of kings is going to put a, a wreath on my head. And he's going to call me victorious. And I'm going to have, wear the crown of righteousness. I am successful. That's what he says before they lead him off to put him to death. How in the world do you think of yourself successful at a time like that? It must be because he really meant what he said in 2 Corinthians 5.9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. If I can live a life that is pleasing to God, I am successful by definition. But what if I don't have a lot of money? I'm successful. What if I'm in prison? I'm successful. What if my family has fallen apart and I can't put it back together? I'm successful if I am pleasing to God. He calls us to live a life that is pleasing to Him. When Paul faced the executioner, what did he know? I'm having my head cut off for being faithful to the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am a success. It puts our own trials in perspective, doesn't it? And it helps us to to understand what real success is is all about. Now, do you think there was um, maybe a little part of Paul that wanted to avoid the executioner? I think so. (laughs) Do you think that he enjoyed sitting in a jail cell? Do you think he liked having his freedom taken away? No, he didn't. And yet, he had been beaten and whipped and stoned in most of the places he went. Did he like that? Of course not. Do you think there was maybe something in Jesus' humanity that wanted to skip the cross? We know there was. Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's right. He's about to go to the cross, and what is he doing? He's falling flat on his face, crying out to the Father. He's sweating drops of blood. He's under so much stress. And what is he crying out to the Father? Not once, not twice, but thrice. What is he crying out? Let this cup pass from me. Don't make me do this. And then he says... Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he stands up and he walks over and gives himself to his executioners because he wants to glorify the Father and he understands that's the definition of success. See, when you make God's will your highest goal, when you make God's smile your definition of success, When you live to be pleasing to God above all else, you are set free to actually desire whatever it is that God wants for your life because that's what will make you successful. When you have an eternal perspective, you no longer have to be a slave to fear because you are a child of God. What can mere man do to you when God loves you with an irrevocable love? 
So John tells us that we make faith and obedience and love these pillars of our lives. And as we do that, our desires will begin to come in line with God's desires, and then we will ask according to His will. Now, is there ever a time when you don't know what God's will is? There is for me. I mean, isn't it tough when you, you, you've come to a crossroads, there's either left or right, and there's a deadline. I got to make this decision, and I don't know if God wants me to go left or God wants me to go right. There, there are times when that's the case. There are times when I am sure God wants me to go left, and in fact, He wants me to go right. Anybody else experience that? Right? So, so here's the thing. Even when we want to be pleasing to God, sometimes we miss it because of our limitations and our lack of understanding. And so, you know, no matter how spiritually mature you are, you still sometimes misunderstand God's will. Or maybe you just have to admit that you don't know God's will in a situation. Think about this. In, in uh, I think it's uh, John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, don't turn there, but in John chapter 9, there's a story of this man who was born blind. Remember, Jesus makes mud and puts it in his eyes and heals him. And um, it says he had been blind for 40 years. He's a 40-year-old man, born blind. He's been blind all this time. He's a beggar. He's always been a beggar. His life has severe limitations. He's suffering. Do you suppose that the people who loved him, like say his parents, ever prayed for him to be healed? Do you, do you suppose that they thought, how could that not be God's will? I mean, doesn't God love my son? How could God not want my son to be healed? In fact, the whole situation was so confusing to the disciples that after Jesus healed them, the disciples pulled them together and said, hey, Jesus, tell us something. This guy was born blind. Whose fault was it? Was it his parents' sin or was it his sin? And Jesus said it was nobody's sin, but it was for the glory of God. <laughs> now, I don't particularly love that answer. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm like, wow, that just feels pretty unfair to me. Suffer for 40 years so that after 40 years of suffering, he can stand as an example to the rest of us about God's faithfulness to give sight to those who are blind and to take over and give life where there's been death. But this guy was, was actually living God's will when nobody could have possibly known that's what was happening. It was for the glory of God. Um, and, and so... Sometimes sincere people pray for things that, they, that seem like they would be God's will, but they are not God's will, or it's not God's timing. That's why John teaches us to pray for God's will to be done. Where did he get that idea, by the way? Jesus. It's, it's from the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus taught him this. When the disciples went to him and said, teach us how to pray, what did he say? Pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, right? That's what Jesus taught John, and John is teaching it to us. Pray according to God's will. Even when you don't know God's will, pray for God's will to be done, whatever it is. And only then does he say, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, and all of that, right? Only after we have made a context where we said, Lord, whatever is your will, that's what I want, 
Should we then even be calling out to God and saying, Lord, I want to be healed of the sickness. Lord, I need a new job. Lord, I need, you know, uh, to get a tow truck to come pick me up at two in the morning or whatever it is I'm praying for, right? It needs to all be in the context of God's will. Now, I want to warn you. I want to give you a confusing passage alert, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to make you aware. I, I tried as hard as I could to get this set up so Byron would have to teach this part, but I couldn't make it work on the schedule, so I'm stuck with this, okay? Every now and then, as I'm going through um, a book and trying to read it in context, I come to a passage and go, yeah, I don't know what that means. And, and six months ago, when we decided we were going to do this series called Summer of Love on the book of 1 John, what I started doing was reading the book of 1 John every single day. And I was just reading it and reading it and reading it and just bathing in it and taking notes and thinking about it and looking at how we're going to break this up, what are the main themes here and all that. And I was just, just soaking in the book of 1 John. You guys think you've been in the book of 1 John for a long time. I was soaking in it for months before we ever started this, right? And I kept coming to chapter 5 every day and I kept coming to these passages, verses 16 through 18, and I kept going... Gee, I hope I figure out what that means before it's time to preach on it. And then this week, I sat down and said, okay, where are we? And I went, oh, no, I forgot to figure out what this means. And so I'm going to just tell you, if you ever go in my office, there's probably a couple thousand books on the shelves in there, and um, they were all on my desk this week. And I'm just rolling up my sleeves and digging in, and, and I'm telling you, I read Every word of this passage in the Greek countless times, I looked up every word in the Greek. I tried to understand all of the things that were happening with the tense and the mood and all of that and the verbs. I was trying to figure out all of this stuff because when you read it, you go, I really don't know what he's talking about. And once I did all that and I got it all figured out and what I had figured out was I still don't know what it means. So that's when I started getting out the commentaries, and I started taking people that I really, really trust as, as great Bible scholars, you know, people like John Stott and John Piper and John Calvin and John MacArthur. <laughs> apparently, apparently, being named John helps you with this. Um, and, and I read all these great theologians, and you know what? They all said the same thing. We're not sure what this means. So I decided, you know what, if, no, if they don't know what it means, probably these guys don't know what it means, so I'll just lie and pretend I know what it means. <laughs> and then the Lord convicted me, and I said, I can't do that. I thought, oh my gosh, what if somebody there knows what it means? That would be terrible. So, <laughs> so I decided I'm just going to give you a confusing passage alert, and I'm going to tell you that after all of that study in all seriousness... You know, you, you boil it down and you narrow it down and you say, listen, if I had to bet my salvation that my interpretation is right, I would not bet. It's possible I'm wrong about this, okay? But I think I'm right at least in terms of the general point of the passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to treat you for just about five, ten minutes like seminary students, and I'm, I'm going to tear this passage apart for you, and I'm going to help you to understand why I've come to the conclusions I've come to about what it means, and then we're just going to bring it back to the practical place and say, what difference does it make? What difference is it going to make in my life, okay? So um, 
whenever we approach a passage that is confusing like this, we have to begin with context. You never understand anything in Scripture by lifting a verse out of context and looking at it. You have to understand the context. Every conversation you have, you would not want to be held accountable for, for two or three words that were put into a different sentence that didn't mean what you meant, right? You want it to be taken in context, and that's what we have to do with Scripture. And when you're doing that with Scripture, you want to begin, in this case, with the, the surrounding verses. What has John been talking about here? What is the point he's trying to make? And then you want to look at the whole of 1 John and say, what is the theme of this book? What is the point he's trying to make in this book? Where has he been going? How has he been taking us here? And then you want to look at the whole New Testament, and then you want to look at the New and the Old Testament and go, what does the Bible have to say about this? What has John been talking about? He's been talking about genuine Christianity versus counterfeit Christianity and the signs that make the difference. And he's been telling us to search our lives to see whether we have genuine salvation based on those things. And he's been saying that true Christians live lives that are marked by faith, obedience, and love, those three pillars. And where those things are lacking entirely, there's no genuine salvation. That's what he's been saying. In the larger context of John's writing and in the New Testament, in fact, if you take Genesis to Revelation, you're going to find this. This passage talks about sin. Does the Bible talk about sin a lot? Yeah, it does. Preachers don't talk about it much because it thins the crowds. But the Bible talks about it quite a bit. And... And from Genesis to Revelation, there is a principle about sin that we get all the way from the Garden of Eden where, he, where God plants a tree in the middle of the garden and He says, don't eat from this tree. And if you eat from it, you shall surely die. So here's the principle. Sin leads to death. That's the principle throughout Scripture. There's not a place where Scripture doesn't give us that principle when it talks about sin. Sin leads to death. What does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death, Right? Um, and we, were, we who were once dead in our trespasses and sin have been made alive together in Christ. Over and over and over again, sin and death are uh, partners. But in this passage, let's, first of all, let's read the passage. Let's go to first, I, I was hoping I could skip it and not even read it to you, but let me just read it to you. First uh, John chapter 5, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death... He shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Right? That's clear, right? So, so let me get this straight, John. First of all, there's, there's sins, and, and he's not talking about the condition of sinfulness. He's talking about, he says, there is a sin leading to death, right? A, a certain time in which a person commits a sin that leads to death. And then he says, and there is some sin that doesn't lead to death. Okay, but then he doesn't tell us what. So, so is there some crazy sin that if I commit it, I'm going to die? I, I would like to know this, right? So there's a sin leading to death. There's a sin not leading to death. And, and he goes on just to confuse it even more by saying that, um, that no actual Christian sins. What? Because throughout Scripture, it talks about the fact that we're still in the flesh, right? This side of heaven. And I don't want to speak for you, but I'm going to just be bold and go out on a, on a limb and be transparent here and admit I sometimes still sin. I don't remember the last time. It was a long time ago probably, but 
oh wait, I just did it again. <laughs> I sometimes still sin, and so do you. And so, so he says Christians don't sin, so that confuses all of this. And um, he says that there is, um, that there is uh, sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. And I'm going, first of all, what kind of death? What does he mean by death? Does he mean that there's going to come a time when your heart stops beating? And maybe if you commit a certain sin, God will just squash you like a bug and you're dead? Does that ever happen? Actually, yes. We see that in Scripture in multiple places. Where someone commits a sin, and for whatever reason, in God's wisdom and God's sovereignty, he says, that's enough, and he puts them to death immediately. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? They lied to the Holy Spirit, and God just killed them. And then told the church, I killed them because they lied to the Holy Spirit. And let them be an example to everybody. And as far as we know, there's no reason to believe they were not actual believers, and God just killed them, right? And, and in um, 1 Corinthians, it talks about how um, some people are being blasphemous in the way that they deal with the Lord's Supper, and because the way they deal with the Lord's Supper, he said, some of you are sick as a result of this sin, and some of you have died. God killed some people because they didn't take the Lord's Supper seriously, which I encourage you, take the Lord's Supper seriously, okay? And yet, how many people have not taken the Lord's Supper seriously and didn't die, right? So, so is he talking about physical death? Or maybe he's talking about spiritual death. And maybe he's saying that, listen, you know, there's some sin that is so bad that um, you go to hell for this one. And maybe he's saying that, on the other hand, there's some sin that is not so bad that it would send you to hell. Maybe there's some spiritual death and some that's not spiritual death. And, and really, after all of the work and research I did trying to figure out what is he talking about, what I finally ended up doing was I just made a, a chart, I just with the pen and paper, old-fashioned way, just made a chart, and I'm going to show you the chart I made. So on the, on the one hand, the left side is Christians, on the right side is non-Christians, right? So, so for Christians, okay, here's what the passage is saying. For Christians, there is some sin that leads to physical death, right? If we're trying to figure out, is he talking spiritual or physical death? So is it true that there's some sin that leads to physical death, even for a Christian? Yes, um, is it true that there is some sin that doesn't lead to physical death for a Christian and you get to keep living even though you just committed that sin? Yes. Um, and then for the non-Christian, physical death. Are there some people who have been killed because of their sin apart from Christ? Yeah. I mean, the Old Testament is full of stories where God just sins in the army of Israel and wipes out people because of their debauchery. And we all go, oh, man, that makes me uncomfortable. But the sovereign God did that, right? And... Are there examples where there's no physical death, even though the person is terribly sinful? Yes, that's the most common case, right? So it would be true then, if he's talking about physical death, that there's some sin that leads to death and some sin that doesn't lead to death, which is what he claims here. But if, we, if he's talking about spiritual death, let's think about that. For the Christian, is there any sin that leads to spiritual death if you're truly saved? No. That's what he just said. I wrote all this so you could know that you're firm in your salvation, that you have eternal life, right? And what can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. Romans chapter 8, right? So, so 
There is for the Christian no sin that leads to spiritual death. Now, you might argue, well, Jesus paid the price. Jesus never died spiritually. He died physically, okay? So Jesus never paid the price of spiritual death. For the non-Christian, if you're not under the grace of God, the Scripture is clear. There is no sin that does not lead to spiritual death, okay? So spiritual death doesn't fit the grid where there's some that leads to death and some that doesn't. But physical death fits the grid. So some theologians think it's spiritual death, some think it's physical death. I'm telling you why I think it's physical death. Okay? I don't think the rest lines up with Scripture, but, but here's the conclusion. Some specific sins lead to physical death, and most do not, but all unbelievers die a spiritual death if they're not under the grace of Christ. So when we read 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, it's much more likely speaking about a sin that leads to physical death like Ananias and Sapphira and the other examples that I gave you. Sometimes God mercifully takes the life even of a believer in order to stop the damage that's being done through their sin. And John acknowledges in verse 16, there is a type of sin that leads to death, apparently even for believers. And how would you even know what that was? How would you even know if the sin, the sin you know, that uh, Douglas just committed leads... Sorry, I picked you out. I don't know. You look sinful or something. I don't know. But... <laughs> I'm, by the way, for those listening online, I'm speaking about another Douglas, not me. So <laughs> the sin that Douglas just committed, right? How would we even know if it's a sin leading to death in his life? Because we're not talking about a, a, a certain type of thing that he did, but an occurrence of doing it, right? And, and it says in the Greek that he's continuing in this sin, okay? And how would we know it was a sin leading to death if he died, you know, if, if, if like Ananias and Sapphira, he's laying dead in the church doorway and God told the apostles, this is because he lied to the Holy Spirit, then we'd know. So how would we even know? We wouldn't know if it was, uh, it was, if, if it was physical death. We wouldn't even know to pray for him until the physical death happened, right? And so what is he saying? He's saying, I, I'm, I'm telling you, pray for someone who is caught up in a continual sin, who is a brother or a sister in Christ pray for them. Um, but he says, if it's a sin leading to death, I'm not telling you you have to pray for that, which is odd, right? Because we're told to pray for all sinners. So why is he saying that? Because you wouldn't even know until he was dead and praying for the dead is pointless, okay? You say, really? Do people pray for the dead? Who would be stupid enough to pray for the dead? I don't know, probably three billion people on the earth today. This is part of their normal religious, if you, if you grew up in Catholicism, you've ever been to a Catholic funeral, you've been told to pray for the dead, right? If you grew up in Mormonism, you know that you've been taught to pray or even be baptized for the dead. There's, there's billions of people who believe that what we ought to do is pray for dead people and maybe God will give them a second chance. But the scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So he's saying, he's not saying I forbid you to pray for people who are caught up in really bad sin. He's saying that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm saying is, if somebody is caught up in sin, you should pray for them. Some sins lead to physical death. But here's the thing. Whatever else this comes down to, here's what you can say for sure. We do know this. We are called to pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin. Even when that sin is against us. We are called to lift one another up. My goodness. 
we talked earlier today about the divide in our country that seems to just be getting worse. People are drawing lines everywhere. You're on that side and I'm on this side. And in some cases it's racial, in some cases it's religious, in some cases it's uh, socioeconomic or, or political, but we just draw lines and we say, I want to know who's on the other side so I know who to hate, right? And what is the church supposed to be about? Love. And, and you know what? There should be no group of people in the world as diverse in terms of our skin color, in terms of our background, in terms of our gender, in terms of our age, in terms of our language and our, and our traditions than the body of Christ. I mean, if we, if the world out there is having trouble loving people who don't look like them, we should be the exception. We should be the ones who love each other no matter what. We should be the ones who do not draw lines and go, you people, you know, I want black people worship over there in that, in that building and then we're going to do a Hispanic service over here and all the Asians get over here and we're going to put all the white people over there because, you know, it has been said that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in all of America and it's true and it's wrong, right? We as the body of Christ are supposed to lock arms. We're supposed to lift each other up. And, and if, if there's one way we can always do that, it's in prayer. Guys, I beg you, pray for me. I need you to pray for me. We need to be praying for each other. And especially if you see something in my life that makes you raise an eyebrow and think, man, I'm not so sure about that guy, then really start praying for me. And, but, but really think about this. Do we do that? How often do we really pay the price praying for somebody who's caught up in sin? They're struggling. And instead of praying for them, what do we so often do? Gossip about them. I mean, we're, we're great at talking about people who have sin issues in their lives. How great are we at praying for those people? We're great at passing judgment on people who are struggling with a certain kind of sin that we're not struggling with. How good are we at praying for those people? We're really great at marginalizing certain people and looking down on them because their particular struggle with sin is uh, just despicable to me. But how are we at praying for them? We even sometimes shame them. But how are we at praying for them? You know, we pray for people who are undergoing tragedies. Somebody undoubtedly wrote something on a prayer card today about somebody who's sick or near death or was in an accident or something, and it's saying, please pray, right? And we do that. We pray for people when they, when they face tragedies. How often do we pray for people when the tragedy they're facing is of their own doing? And we see that they're just, they're just floating down a river away from God, and instead of coming alongside and lifting them up and helping them, we judge them. God says, pray. Part of what it means to be siblings in Christ is that we pray for each other in all circumstances. It's kind of like becoming a part of the body of Christ is kind of like getting married. It's a for better or worse kind of thing. It's in richer or poorer kind of thing. It's a sickness and health kind of thing, right? We need to be praying for each other in all circumstances. We need each other's prayer support. Look at verse 19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Guys, it's hard to be godly. It's hard to walk in obedience. It's hard to walk in love. I mean, it's like swimming upstream or running uphill all the time. 
It's hard. And you know what? I fail in certain areas sometimes. You fail in certain areas sometimes. We need to help each other and not turn on each other. We need to be praying for one another. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are God's gift to us to help us walk with God because it's an uphill battle and the world is not designed to help us succeed at it. But look at verse 20. It's like a breath of fresh air. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God, eternal life. (sighs) Finally, some good news in the midst of all this talk about sin and death, right? Encouragement. Guess what? Jesus Christ has come. We're not like the ancient nation of Israel hoping that one day a Messiah will come and we will be delivered. Jesus Christ has come. And I have better news. He has overcome. He didn't just come, but He defeated sin and death on our behalf. On that cross, He took care of sin. When that stone rolled away, He took care of death. We can live because of what He has done. That's good news. And the scripture says right here that we are in him and that whoever is in Christ has life. See, when we put our trust in Christ, we can accurately be called children of God and nothing can ever take us away from him. Not because Christians are perfect, but because Jesus is. And, and, and he has come and paid our price and he has revealed himself to us and we are in him and therefore we can know that we have eternal life. So much of this series he's been telling us, hey, be careful because some of you think you have eternal life and you really don't. Now he's saying to us that if you have this evidence of the, of the work of Christ in your life, you can know that you have eternal life because you are in him. By God's grace, we believe in Jesus and we believe that he is who he says he is. By God's grace, we walk in obedience and our lives can be marked by our trust in him. By God's grace, we're showered in his love so that we are empowered then to love other people. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the real gospel. That's the God we serve. We can be confident in him that we have eternal life because of who he is. And if we're not confident, then he is the source of that eternal life. All we have to do is come to him. All we have to do is bow at his feet. All we have to do is lay down our lives and say, Lord, I'll take your life in exchange for mine. I've been screwing mine up anyway. Lord, just take me. Give me life. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I cannot possibly please you on my own. But if you'll come into my life and give me new life, I will trust you and I will walk with you and I will obey you. I will accept your love and I'll let you love others through me. God, come in and change my life. See, here's the great news. If success is defined as being pleasing to God and you sit here today going, I know I'm not pleasing to God because I'm not walking with Jesus because I'm being my own Lord and doing my own thing and I haven't been paying God any attention at all. You think, wow, that's terrible news. No, it's great news because all that it takes to go from being unsuccessful to successful is to say yes to God 
And, and then we move out of darkness into light. We move out of death into life. That's what God does for us. What an awesome God we serve. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new.